This is Primal Potential, and I am your host, Elizabeth Benton. Through education, motivation, and implementation, we will bridge the gap between knowing and doing so we can master fat loss naturally and help you reach your highest potential. Let's get started. Are you ready to hear something totally crazy? Today is the 100th episode of the Primal Potential Podcast. Okay, so maybe you're not as like happy about that as I am, but it is a pretty special day for me. And I know that might sound confusing based on the episode numbers, but when you add up the traditionally numbered episodes with the Q&As and the random shows, today is number 100, which is pretty wild since it is airing on August 15th of 2015 and the podcast launched on January 5th, 2015. And quite frankly, on December 5th, just a month before the launch, I had no idea that I was going to launch a podcast. So I am pretty excited today. And it seems only appropriate that I say the most heartfelt thank you. Thank you for giving this podcast a shot. Thank you for sending me your feedback. Thank you for trusting me with your questions, for encouraging me and supporting me and helping me deliver content that is valuable to you. Because I say it all the time and it just becomes more and more true. This is really your show. It is about helping you, listening, whoever is listening right now. It is about helping you reach your goals and giving you whatever tools and information you need in order to do that. And I will tell you, it's so crazy because I mean, I know it's just another episode, right? But it feels significant to me. And I went back and forth a trillion times on what to cover in this episode. Now, the good news about that is I came up with a ton of ideas that you will hear from uh, in the next few weeks. But honestly, even when I settled on the topic that I'm going to get into today, I I wasn't 100 percent about it. Um, But here's what really tipped the scale for me. I think that it will be tremendously valuable, even if I'm a little or a lot less than comfortable putting some of this stuff out there. And some of you guys might hate this topic, and that's totally cool. Bye. Come back next time. No hard feelings. Still love you. But I wanted to share with you today the phases of my own weight loss struggles and successes. What things most contributed to my dysfunctional relationship with food and what things most contributed to overcoming those obstacles and challenges? Because I think that a lot of you will identify with both sides of the coin, the things that held me back and be motivated or encouraged uh, by the things that really helped me overcome my struggles and not just for you. Maybe this will help you see something that will help you relate to your children. I hear from a lot of people who are struggling like my mom did with kids who are heavier than ideal and really struggle with that fine line between wanting to help your kids be healthy and wanting your kids to have a healthy relationship with food, but at the same time, not wanting to give them a complex, right? Not wanting to make them feel less than or not good enough or like they're on a diet or whatever. So yes, it's a little bit of a me cast, right? But I want you to understand why I decided to do this. And I share bits and pieces of my story in many episodes to help you see that I understand food obsession and I understand the daily ups and downs of weight loss, having lost 140 pounds myself. 
but to give you an idea of what did and didn't work for me, what screwed me up and what really helped. And I've never really taken a deep dive into a lot of the things that impacted me in a negative way and impacted me in a really positive way, the things that I missed out on because of my weight and some of my biggest and most significant emotional hurdles, right? And I have, over the last several years, spent a lot of time thinking about what contributed to the bad habits that I developed that led to my weight gain and food obsession. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about the mindset shifts and habits that contributed to sustainable fat loss. And inevitably, whenever I share any part of my story on email or on blog or on this podcast, I get emails from people saying, oh my goodness, my story is just like your story, or that really, really spoke to me. I didn't think anybody else experienced that before. And so I think there's value in fundamentally realizing you're not broken, realizing you're not alone. And then also feeling hopeful that even with the most extreme food obsession, even with the most extreme and longest lasting emotional eating patterns, you can break through it. You can transform and change, right? And I believe that many of you can see yourself in all of my story or in one small part of my story and see an opportunity for improvement. And if you don't want to hear my story, that's cool. Like I said, come back next time. But maybe... Part of my pain will help you through yours. Or maybe part of the strategy that helped me overcome it will help you overcome yours. And truthfully, and I say this all the time to people in my life who encourage me to find balance, I'm not looking for balance because (laughs) there's no gap between Primal Potential and me, Elizabeth Benton. It is me and I am it. It's all me. My story, my passion, my pain, my service, my life and my commitment to help, that's that's me. It also happens to be Primal Potential. I'm not looking for that balance between life as Elizabeth Benton and life as Primal Potential because I believe that where you find joy, you find balance. And I also believe that my greatest pain was the foundation for my true passion. And I find joy in helping people believe in themselves, in helping people pursue their physical, mental, or emotional transformation. Right here with you guys is where I want to be. Period. It's where I want to be. Helping you, getting your emails, knowing what you're struggling with. It's where I want to be. It's it's not something that I need a break from. It's my whole life has brought me to this point. And it's kind of funny because I'm actually a very private person. And talking about a lot of this, my my past, the crazy, ridiculous, and quite frankly, embarrassing things that I did, it's hard for me. And it makes me emotional. But if you can see yourself or your children or your spouse in something that I have gone through, that means you can also see an opportunity for persevering and changing. And I like to say that it kind of started with what I call my metabolic disadvantage. Thanks, mom. (laughs) And it's not because she was like overweight and I was born into that kind of family. It's kind of the opposite. My mom is a tall, lean lady. She's about 5'8 and maybe about 140 pounds. I'm sorry, mom. I don't know. You might be less than that. She's, She's lean, right? And she's pretty healthy. And she was not healthy when she was pregnant with me. She was still very lean and very slender and smaller than, than she is now, although she's probably lost a couple inches on her height, maybe-ish. Anyway, 
But when she was pregnant with me, starting out in that very lean frame, she she couldn't hold down food for pretty much the duration of her pregnancy. And she actually lost weight throughout her pregnancy. And her gums would bleed when she would brush her teeth and her hair would fall out. And she often had to have family members take care of my older sister, Debbie, because she was just too sick. And everybody anticipated that I would be this scrawny, sickly baby. And I wonder how life would be different if that was the case. But scrawny, I was not. I was a baller. I was a chunky little munchkin, nearly nine pounds. But my mom throughout the pregnancy was extremely malnourished. So what happened? Like what created this little heifer of a baby, right? Well, in utero, my body adapted. My metabolism slowed down out of necessity. And remember, even pre-birth, right, the human body, even as it's developing, is built for survival. And when it senses a lack of fuel, it is going to downshift metabolic function and store as much fat as possible. And boy, did I ever have some fat on my little baby belly and legs. God, the pictures rolls, (laughs) rolls and rolls for days. Uh, But honestly, I was born what I kind of jokingly but kind of seriously call metabolically disadvantaged. That time while my mom was pregnant, that was metabolic imprinting. And I had a slower metabolic rate because my body was in survival mode and my standard operating procedure metabolically was to store fat and conserve fuel because my body was built in survival mode because of my mom being not well. And After that, right, I mean, I was raised in the same household as my sister Debbie, who was tall and thin. We ate the same foods. We were both very active, but I continued to put on weight. And after a few years, my mom was concerned because that baby weight just didn't disappear as I grew. I was still heavy and she was embarrassed. And I'm not like mad that she was embarrassed. It's just a fact. I don't really assign emotion to it one way or another, but she felt and she would admit this now, that my weight and excess weight was a reflection on her as a parent. And I'm not a parent, but I can imagine that that would be a very real true feeling, right? If your kid is overweight or obese, you feel as a parent like somehow that is a reflection on what you do or don't do. And that for me was kind of where the trouble started. And it started for two primary reasons. She started really emphasizing food and body weight issues to me at a very young age because she was concerned about my weight and she was embarrassed by my weight. And I'll get into that in a little bit more. But the other thing that really contributed to it is that doctors were telling her and telling me at a very young age that I was just a big kid, but I was really healthy and I would just probably always be a big kid. Well, these two things really shaped my beliefs about myself and my relationship with food and not in a good way. And that was kind of foundational, along with my metabolic disadvantage, it was foundational to how I developed as a young girl and the way I approached food. So why am I sharing this with you? And the reason is because I know many of you have been through this growing up heavy or You have kids that are struggling with their weight. So whether you were just always the big one or you don't know how to approach your child who is struggling with their weight, I think it's really important to hear how this kind of stuff impacted me. And I see it so often in emails from parents whose kids are going through similar things uh, or in adults who went through similar things when they were growing up. And 
I can certainly share a lot about how not to approach the childhood obesity issue based on what really shaped some of my own unhealthy eating habits, things that I struggled to overcome for the majority of my life. As a very young kid, four or five years old, I very specifically remember there being an emphasis on my weight. And so if if phase one was metabolic imprinting and kind of being born with a slower metabolism because of the survival mode I had to go through. Phase two was just establishing this unhealthy relationship with food and some really negative beliefs about myself. I remember, like I said, really early, four or five years old, my grandmother encouraging me to start the day with lemon juice and water because she said it would curb my appetite. Nothing wrong with that, right? I'm sure a lot of grandmothers share crazy things with their grandkids. Except I was five and already acutely aware that my mom wasn't happy with my weight. So I think it had a little bit of like a heavier stigma to me, no pun intended, I guess, but because I sort of already knew that my weight was a problem. So then to be told like, oh, well, drink this in the morning to curb your appetite as a very young girl. I don't know. I I just I think that it's helpful to understand the reason you have the beliefs about food and the beliefs about your body that you do. And for me, I carried those with me for a long time. And it started out pretty innocently. My mom saying things that at the time she felt were really encouraging, like you're so smart and you're so pretty. Imagine all the things that you could be or do if you just lost this weight, right? Or putting me on a diet plan where my sister could eat whatever she wanted, but for me, I couldn't. I had restrictions. And like all kids, feeling like certain foods were off limits just made me want them more. That's super normal. You tell a kid they can't play video games, then they're hyper-focused on the video games because they know it's off limits. And that was the beginning for me of assigning emotion to food and making food about much more than food. Because let's get real, food in and of itself is neutral. Anything that we feel about it is emotion that is assigned that we learn. Those are learned programs, behaviors, and most often those learned emotional associations really don't serve us. I joined Weight Watchers when I was about eight years old. And of course, my mom had to go with me because I was a minor, which was weird because she was very thin and didn't have any weight to lose. And honestly, though, I don't want to send the message that parents shouldn't try to help their kids. They should. But but I mean, I think back to what I was exposed to at a Weight Watchers meeting in 1990. A lot of overweight women with very negative body image talking about eating their weight in lettuce and fat-free cookies so that they could drink wine and eat ice cream at night, right? I mean... That's where I learned the strategy of eating sugar-free Jello and fat-free microwave popcorn for days and days because that was just the mentality, like all these different strategies to eat as little as possible that I was learning as an eight-year-old. And I mean, before we were on bazillions of diets, and when I say we, it was my mom picking the strategy and then explaining it to me. But before we would start any new diet, my, my and I'm sure you guys can relate to this, what I'm going to describe as a young girl, many people do as adults. And I wonder for everybody where it was learned. But my mom would take me to the grocery store with great enthusiasm night before we'd start a new plan. And she'd give me a pep talk. Tomorrow's the first day of the rest of your life. So go ahead and pick out something really special to have today because tomorrow we're going to dive in and we're going to make really healthy choices. And I get it. She was trying to motivate me. But here's the message that I received and then really became part of my mentality and my thought process. 
You're either on or you're off. Junk food is limited, so you need to get it all in while you can. And before you decide to eat healthy, you know, you better get in all that bad stuff. The all in or all out mentality and the scarcity mindset with indulgences. Like if I didn't eat those Oreos that night, they wouldn't be available ever again, right? And that just created such not only negativity, but like a hoarding mentality with food. That scarcity mindset is dangerous. And I see it as a fundamental issue that holds so many people back. Scarcity, fear of missing out, viewing food choices as all in or all out. Those are foundational struggles of people who are overweight or have an unhealthy relationship about food. And a note about this for For parents or for people who might someday be parents, kids are not born. I was not born with those kinds of relationships with food, scarcity mindset, fear of missing out. Those are learned. And how are they learned? Where are they learned? When are they learned? They're either observed or they're outright taught in direct ways, like taking me to the grocery store and saying, okay, go get a special treat because tomorrow your diet starts, right? And we have such a huge responsibility to not impart those kinds of negative messages. Kids, without being taught any of those negative associations, without learning those negative associations, are really fantastic at eating when they're hungry and running around and playing, right? They'll go through puberty and see food as food, but the emotional attachment is learned. It is observed or it is taught outright. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we teaching? With our words or our behaviors, any type of direct or indirect message, we are imprinting our children's future relationship with food. For me, things kind of got a little bit more intense, more intense than the Weight Watchers meetings and the on and off diets, but there was a food scale in the kitchen. And my mom would weigh out my food, but nobody else's food was weighed, just mine. And it really, there was no enjoyment of food anymore, just anxiety, fear of missing out. Like what if, you know, everybody's eating more than me. What if I'm hungry? I don't want to eat this. That taught me to hoard and to sneak and to binge because I was being demonstrated serious restriction. And then there was, not only was the food stuff really controlled and forced in a certain way, but also forced exercise. Now, I am all for turn off the TV, go out and play, right? But I had to run cross country. It was not an option. My mom made me run cross country in middle school. And I'll tell you what, I came in last every single race except one. And it just so happened that I got lost and uh, I cut off about, oh, 80% of the course. And when I came around the corner, like in first or second place, you should have seen the looks on these people's faces, like parents that had been to every meet. And they were like, who, what? Where, like, it was just such shock. And did I tell anybody? No, but do they all know? Obviously, I came in last every single race except that one. But here's the other thing. My older sister came in first every race, and I was so embarrassed. And during practice, I would hide in the woods and come out of the woods when practice was over, right? There was one, there was one race, and I'm telling you this again because the extent of my struggle I think, makes overcoming it that much more powerful. So no matter how severe the extent of your struggle, you can totally do a 180. 
But I went to I went to a private school that was uh, maybe 30 minutes. My middle school was about 30 minutes away from my my home. And in middle school, there was the hometown public middle school and we had a race against them. So it was all the kids that I went to elementary school with. And it was all the kids that, you know, like lived in my neighborhood and whatever else. And I didn't want to go to the meet because I didn't want to be embarrassed coming in last in front of these kids from my hometown. But my mom made me go. And so the beginning of the race started out along the soccer field. And then it went into the woods where, like, that's where I hid or, like, walked home. But anyway, starting out around the middle school, the boys' soccer team was practicing. So these were boys, you know, I was in middle school. And these were boys I had grown up with, boys that I would see at the grocery store. And so I took off sprinting at the start of the race. Now, (laughs) my sprint was, like, good enough to keep up with the number one runner when she was just, like, starting out pacing herself jogging. But that's neither here nor there. So anyway, I start out in a dead freaking sprint, like, all out because the boys are there and I didn't want to be last, right? Well, all of a sudden, the number one runner calls out to me and I'm thinking she's just surprised or impressed that I'm, like, at the front of the pack. And as I turn my head to look at her... (laughs) I ran straight into a lamppost and knocked myself out. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was just a mortifying experience for me, but it didn't stop there. My mom made me run outside a a mile or two every morning before school, and she made me wear this orange reflective vest, and she would follow me in the car. And again, I was terribly embarrassed. I hated it. It would make me cry. I resented her. And exercise felt like a punishment. It felt like something I wanted to escape, make excuses out of because I wasn't good enough as I was, right? I had to weigh myself in front of her every morning for years. And I remember getting into the bathroom beforehand, knowing that she was going to come in for me to check my weight. And I would do the craziest things, hoping that it would make any bit of difference. And it just kind of gives you some insight into how young I was or stupid or both. But I would spit into a cup as many times as possible or I would cut my hair. I would turn on the shower super, super hot and do jumping jacks, hoping that I would sweat out any excess weight because I was so anxious about her seeing that number every day. And when I hit 100 pounds, I'll never forget what she said. I know she's long since forgotten. My, my I go by Elizabeth now, but my family calls me Betsy. And she said... Don't worry, Betsy. Just tell yourself that this is the heaviest day of your life. I was 100 pounds. What did she think? I was going to be like an 85-pound 30-year-old? I mean, like, sorry to disappoint, Mom. That didn't really work out. But it just, the things we remember. You know, I remember a boy in the third grade saying to me, you're so fat you sink in gravity. Well, I, I didn't understand gravity at the time, so I went home and told my dad. And he said, you go back to school and you tell that kid you're such an airhead, you float. I got a detention. Nothing happened to the boy. But those things, they they stay with you. And it's so critical for kids that we just be really careful about the messages that we send. And I remember going through, this was in high school, and my high school is about an hour away from my home. And bad choice number one, we were going through the McDonald's drive-thru in Hudson, New Hampshire. I, I swear, like I remember the car we were in. I remember where I was sitting. I remember where my sister was sitting. My mom was sitting. I was in the back seat. McDonald's breakfast uh, breakfast drive through on the way to school. And my mom and my sister both got an Egg McMuffin and hash browns and juice. And I ordered the same thing. But what was passed to the back seat to me over the seat from my mom, literally, I kid you not, there was no juice. There was no hash browns. There was no English muffin. 
She handed me the disgusting egg, ham, and cheese meld, like, grossness, right? That was my breakfast. It was so nasty and so unappealing. And here's here's the big point that I want to make about this. It taught me two things. It taught me that eating for fat loss was, number one, disgusting, and number two, a punishment. It taught me that eating for fat loss was disgusting and a punishment because while they enjoyed their orange juice and hash browns and slightly more palatable egg McMuffin, I had a slimy, disgusting egg patty with processed ham and something that was the color of cheese, right? It didn't set me up to want to make good choices if that's what good choices look like. Dude, if that's what good choices look like, I want to make bad, bad, bad choices. I had a personal trainer in middle school. And kudos to my mom for being willing to invest in my health that way. But the trainer was very specific about what I should and shouldn't eat. So the common meal that I would have, it really stands out in my memory, was scrambled egg whites with frozen vegetables. I mean, just thinking about that makes me gag. No flavor, nothing I would ever eat on my own now in any combination. I mean, egg whites, no, that's nasty. They don't even taste like anything. So again, fat loss, totally unappealing. Now when I work with people and when I talk to parents, I want everybody to understand that choosing foods, even when your goal is fat loss, is about two things. Eat foods you love, period. And eat foods that make you feel amazing. I know for me, if I go have a bag of Skittles, I kind of feel like trash, right? My energy goes up and then it crashes and then I kind of feel like I want to take a nap and I like have the sticky stuff in my teeth. Eat foods you love, but eat foods that make you feel amazing. And that's just not how it was positioned for me. And again, this is all about me reflecting on what set me up to really struggle with my weight for most of my life and then what really helped bring me out of that, right? So obviously, like any kid with a brain, I started sneaking food. If your kid is sneaking food, and I talk to a lot of my clients whose kids sneak food, hell, I talk to my adult clients who, as grown adults who buy the groceries, they sneak food. Guys, sneaking food is a sign that something is just not right, okay? It makes them feel like they need to hide. So if you, as an adult, sneak food, eat things in your car, hide the wrappers, eat things when you know people aren't home or when the kids have gone to bed, ask yourself why. And ask yourself if you'd ever want your child to operate that way. It comes from somewhere. That desire to hide or sneak, it comes from somewhere and you've got to uncover that. If you want to change your habits and that's one of your habits, you've got to figure out why you do that so that you can overcome it. We shouldn't sneak food. There's nothing wrong with food, even if it's ice cream or pizza, right? Eat it all. Like for, you know, people say to me now that I have a podcast and, you know, whatever else, like if you are out somewhere and you go to an ice cream place and you order ice cream, like, what are you going to do if some, if like a podcast listener walks in and be like, hey, what flavor are you getting? Like, I'm not here to hide it. You know what I mean? Like when I, when I went to Boston and went to uh, the North End to a bakery with my mom and got like this big um, profiterole, like I, I posted it on Instagram. I'm not hiding anything. There's nothing wrong. So if you feel the need to sneak or hide, you've got to look into that. So along with the sneaking came the binging. 
this was sort of the next evolution after I really understood that food was restricted and exercise was forced and that eating for fat loss was forced upon me and it was nasty. It wasn't good. The binging started because I felt like there was this scarcity. If I had an opportunity to eat something and there was something there that was appealing more so than like egg whites and frozen vegetables and a nasty pseudo egg from McDonald's, I was going to binge, right? And I was acutely aware that I was being judged because of my weight, not just by my friends and kids can be cruel, but even in my own home by my family. So I was kind of making it worse because I was embarrassed about my weight and I was getting a really hard time about my weight, but then I was binging and sneaking food because I felt so restricted and deprived and I was teased. I was made fun of and I developed a really fantastic and witty sense of um, self-deprecating humor because I felt that if I could make fun of myself, then others wouldn't make fun of me. And I see that with my clients so often. If they make a bad choice, they will be so quick to insult themselves, make fun of themselves when they post their progress pictures. It's often with jokes or remarks about how gross they are. And that is such a dangerous, slippery slope. And all of that fostered isolation. And isolation fostered depression. That is a slippery slope. Sneaking food, binging, teasing, self-deprecating jokes, isolation, depression. And it starts with just this sense that you are not okay as you are. And I routinely, and this is quite frankly, something that I still have the natural tendency to do that I'm working on. I routinely apologized for my weight, for my body, both directly and indirectly. And I remember writing a letter to my high school volleyball coach, which I've talked about before, um, on the first day of tryouts. And it was stained with tears. And I remember, I remember he went into the bathroom to read it. And I remember people teasing him for being in the bathroom so long. And I knew he was reading this long, heartfelt letter from me. And I promised him, like desperately, that I would lose weight throughout the season and I would work harder than anybody else. And I was apologizing for the fact that I hadn't lost more weight over the summer. And I was embarrassed. I apologized indirectly by trying to get great grades or doing outlandish things to try and get people to like me. And I tried to overcompensate for my weight as a way of apologizing for not being good enough, like I owed something to everybody because I was letting them down by being overweight. This trickled over into romantic relationships and holy lord did I do some really dumb and damaging things. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could write a book. Maybe I will someday. Maybe I won't. My mom would read it. That would be a problem. But I I would tell my long distance boyfriend, I brought this up. I would say, how about we intentionally don't see each other for four months or six months or sometimes even I'd suggest longer than that so that I can impress you with how much weight I'll lose in between and you can be really proud of me when you see me again. And in hindsight, I think I really taught people and boyfriends how to treat me and how to not be okay with my weight. I mean, hell, in reality, they didn't have to date me. Nobody was holding a gun to their heads. So there was obviously something they liked about me, but I couldn't see it. So I would suggest, I brought these things up and then eventually they learned to do it too. But I would suggest these ridiculous incentives to try and tell them like, don't worry, I'll lose the weight. And they'd go for it because given the choice, they'd probably prefer me to be smaller than larger. But in my head then, it just told me like, yep, I'm not good enough as I am. I'm not good enough until I lose weight. I taught people how to treat me and it was really, really, really bad. 
And this dissatisfaction with who I was innately led to a dramatic polar extreme cycle of either crash dieting or being completely off the rails, binging and going crazy. It was the beginning of a very long food obsession and weight loss obsession. This is when I walked away from a full scholarship in Latin and Greek to go study nutrition, even though I was very overweight. I felt like I had to be the best in every way to compensate, really, because I had this core belief that I wasn't enough and I was desperate to like undo that or apologize for it. So I had to be the smartest, the hardest working, the most loyal, the most direct, the most honest, the most accomplished. And those extremes played out in my dieting. This yo-yo dieting, crash dieting, and I see it all the time in people who email me. It was legit and it was dangerous. I'm I'm not just talking about, you know, months of chicken broth and protein shakes, which isn't ideal, and months of fat-free popcorn and sugar-free jello, and I shudder to think about the ridiculous lack of nutrients in my life, good Lord. But it was dangerous. It was fentermine. It was stimulant drugs. It was diuretics, HCG, bulimia. And in high school, when a when a friend of mine told my guidance counselor that I was bulimic, he called home, of course. And I remember overhearing my parents fight about the bulimia conversation. And my mom said it wasn't true because I was still overweight and I was probably just doing it for attention. And my dad said it didn't matter if it was true or not or if it was for attention or not, but they needed to talk to me about it. Nobody ever talked to me about it. Nobody ever talked to me about it. I was all or nothing. I had such extremes in every aspect of my life. I completely lost sight of what moderation was, if I ever even knew what it was. And in addition to having that that extreme mentality being both mentally and emotionally damaging, it wrecked my hormones. I stopped having regular periods. My moods were unstable. And you know, Here's the other thing. I didn't even realize how negative my thoughts were about myself. And I think the reason I didn't realize it, it was because it was so natural. It was so normal. It was the way I had always thought about myself. My earliest thoughts about myself were about being too heavy and mom wanting to see my weight go down on the scale. Like all of that. It was this constant tape playing in my head with thoughts that I hardly even noticed because they were just so normal. But they influenced my choices, and those choices kept me struggling. Thoughts like, I've always been fat, and I'm great at losing weight, but terrible at keeping it off, and I would be better, I would be more popular, I would be more successful if I was thinner, but I just can't do it. And it was exhausting. I was depressed. And by the time I was in my late 20s, I just couldn't keep doing it. I couldn't keep doing it and I just I wasn't willing to live the way I had been living. I couldn't and I wouldn't. And I started to look seriously at what I had done wrong. Like I was just too exhausted to be like, what's the next diet? Because I had been through that so many times. I was just like, screw this, right? I had to start looking at what I had been doing wrong. I had to start treating this like I would treat a problem in business, right? You wouldn't just like keep doing the same damn strategy that's failed a million times, right? You'd you'd figure out what was failing and you'd try and do something different. And I knew that I had incredible tenacity and drive and the ability to stick to it. Dude, I am one of the most stubborn women you will ever meet in your life. But I had to look at my failures, which for somebody who has a desire to be a perfectionist is really hard to do. But I kept putting the weight back on. 
And I had to figure out why that was happening. So I started to slow down my thoughts, which if you know me, it's crazy. Inside my brain is like a little Tasmanian devil. It's just bananas. But before, my mindset had always been, okay, here's how I can lose weight the fastest. And here's how much weight I can lose by this date. And it was just like, go, 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 go. And instead, I said, it's time to slow down. And to realize that the more extreme the pendulum swings, it swings both ways, right? You don't just have extreme swings in one direction. It goes back. So I f- realized, and this is this is why I'm sharing this with you, because these pendulum swings of like, I'm on track, I'm hardcore, and pizza and beer, right? Those are so common. I realized that I needed to avoid extremes. And I also realized that it wasn't about what I was eating, but why I was eating. Because I didn't have a problem going months eating egg whites. I mean, it sucked. But what was driving the emotions that made me lose control? I had to face that. I had a client tell me this weekend, I'm good as long as I stay busy. So my plan is to just stay busy. And I was like, great. So you're going to do great whenever you're busy and you're going to do terribly whenever you're not busy. That's a terrible plan. I had to face the emotions that were making me lose control. And staying busy is never the answer. It's get to the root. If you want a permanent solution, then you need to understand what your anchor is, what that thing is that drags you down, that pulls you off course. And I knew that I would never get out of this cycle if I didn't address that stuff. And all I wanted at that point in my life was to get out of that cycle. And then I realized that at the core of my beliefs, who I was I was the fat girl. I was the emotional eater. But those core beliefs were going to keep me fat, keep me from making progress. But I also wasn't ready to be like, you're lean, you're healthy, you're fit, because I wasn't. I was a house. I was a heifer. I was a fat ass, like legit, right? So I knew on the one hand, the core belief that you're just the fat girl is going to keep you fat. But I, I'm not delusional enough to be like, you're healthy and you're fit and you make perfect choices. So I, I again, reminding myself of the need to avoid extremes, I just started to say, when I noticed those negative thoughts and when they'd pop into my head, I would say, I, I, today I'm making progress. Today I'm making progress. And I also recognized that in the past, I had been obsessed with and overwhelmed by how long the journey was, how far I had to go. So I had to address that. Like, you can't just, I have so many clients who are like, oh, I'm stressed that the progress isn't fast enough. Dude, deal with today. Stay in today. I had to stop focusing on the future almost altogether. Because you can't do anything today about what happens in six months, but you can do something about today, right? So I had to keep bringing my attention to the present moment. And whenever my mind would wander to how fast can I lose weight or it's not happening fast enough or how much weight I needed to lose by XYZ date, I would gently bring my attention back to what can I do right now? And it's a lot like meditation. People hate meditation because their attention wanders, right? In seconds, it's like, I'm present. Oh, wait, now I'm thinking about like pizza and beer. Or I'm present and now I'm thinking about what I need to do at work in the morning. So people hate meditation because their attention wanders so quickly. But that's just life, right? That's everything. You have to be patient with yourself and realize that that's everybody's experience. And the more you bring yourself back to the present, the more you keep yourself out of what you don't have any control over, the easier it becomes to stay there. 
another big paradigm shift for me was learning the difference between short-term strategies and long-term strategies. And I talk about this all the time when people say, what do you think about Whole30? What do you think about 21-day sugar detox? Blah, blah, blah. All of my previous dieting attempts were short-term strategies. What can I do to lose the most weight as fast as possible? Oh, yeah, HCG drops and 400 calories a day plus two hours of working out. I mean, could I have maintained that? No. So why was I surprised when I couldn't maintain the weight loss? I couldn't. My new standard was this. Hear me, okay? My new standard was this. Could I see myself doing this every day for the rest of my life? If the answer was no, it wasn't a strategy that I would initiate, period. It was not a habit I was going to build. Like I tell you all the time, eat foods you love. I don't love broccoli, so I don't eat it all that often. I do love ice cream, so I find ways to incorporate it as an occasional indulgence. The biggest shifts for me, no more negative self-talk. It doesn't mean that it doesn't pop into my head like you walk past a mirror and you get a crappy angle and you think you're, you know, your, your love handles are big or your butt looks big or whatever it is. It doesn't mean that that doesn't happen, but I immediately replace that with today I'm making progress. Today I'm making progress. Another one of the biggest shifts, again, was staying present, not getting so caught up in what happens next and where I'll be in five months or six months or five years. Right now, what can I do? Right now, I'm sitting here. What is the best thing I can do right now to help me move towards my goals? I can't do anything right now about five months from now. The other thing was small changes. So many times I'd go from like all or nothing. Remember those pendulum swings, right? It would just be, okay, it's egg whites and frozen vegetables for the win all day, every day, baby. That's just too much, too much, small changes. I made small changes and I practiced them all like over time, day in, day out. When I screwed up, I just went back to the small changes. And I had to resist that all or nothing. I hear so much of that all or nothing talk on social media and in the emails I get. It's as simple as this. Is it working for you? Is it giving you the results that you want? No. Can you make great progress without that all or nothing mindset? Yes, absolutely. You're never on or off. You're always moving forward, even when you pause to learn. And you can call that pause for learning a screw up, or you can call it a pause for learning. Because if you take the opportunity to learn from whatever contributed to you making a choice that isn't going to help you reach your goals, you can learn from it. And then lastly, and this is so huge. This should just, I could have summarized all of this in this one statement. Gratitude, optimism, and belief in my ability to do just about anything. Gratitude and optimism and belief are choices, right? You can wake up and focus on what you don't have or what you haven't accomplished or how you have screwed it up, or you can focus on the fact that you have the opportunity, that you're going to stay focused, that you have the ability to buy groceries, that you have the opportunity to listen to podcasts that give you free motivation and free information, right? Gratitude, optimism, and the belief that you can change your life. If you don't have that, that's where you need to start working first, for sure. My changes were gradual. Eating more whole foods, listening to my body for probably the first time ever, learning through experience that blowing a meal or indulging too, too significantly doesn't mean the day is shot. It just means you're one choice away from making progress towards your goals again, right? And learning something that can serve you for the rest of your journey. The single biggest factor maybe was slowing down my mind, not getting so worked up. It's just food. And I always acted like it was just a crisis. It's not. It's just food. And progress is totally possible. Shooting for fast, fast, fast always backfired on me. Take it one choice at a time. Slow down. Realize 
but it's a process. Take a deep breath and then another one. You probably need like 10. Make a good choice and then do it again. Make another one. So that's really what I wanted to share with you guys today. And I, I know it might have seemed a little random, but I think it's important to understand what contributes, what pulls you off course, what are those significant factors that hold you back? Where did they come from? How can you make sure that you don't teach those things to your kids? How can you start to change the way you think about food and your body and yourself? Because the negativity isn't serving you. It's not working. It doesn't help. Whether you think it's true or not is totally irrelevant. So one of the things I wanted to do, because I was like, I got to do something. I got to like, I don't know, I give a gift or something. I Maybe I don't. I don't know. It was in my head that I should do something for the 100th episode. And so two of my courses, um, I, I'm going to put 100 coupons for each out there to basically put them out there for 50% off up to 100. So 100 for each course. The coupon is 100, 100. It's live now for the Carb Strategies for Fat Loss course and the Emotional Eating course. And, and these two courses summarize the strategies that I used for my own transformation. And the summaries, uh, they summarize the strategies that is what I teach my one-on-one clients. These strategies address both of the things that I talked about, the food choices, but also the underlying issue. Because if, you know, the the emotional eating course is titled Overcoming Emotional Eating and Self-Limiting Beliefs. And it is those self-limiting beliefs that's the reason that so many people fall off the wagon so many times. Like, I, you know, I said when I put the course out that that particular course, Overcoming Emotional Eating and Self-Limiting Beliefs, is the single thing I am most proud of since I have launched Primal Potential because I believe that has the power to make the biggest difference. Because if you don't believe that you can do this, if you see yourself as like the fat one, as you see yourself as the yo-yo dieter, then the carb strategies course doesn't mean crap for you because it's not about carb strategies. It's about your self-limiting beliefs. And the carb strategies, once you get to the point where, all right, I'm ready, I want to do the work, I just don't want to waste my time on stupid strategies that just make me hungry and miserable, those are the strategies that is, that's what I implemented, it's what I teach my clients, so that you don't feel hungry, so that you don't have cravings, so that you can enjoy foods you love and indulge moderately and still reach your fat loss goals. I never felt restricted or deprived throughout 140 pounds of weight loss. I ask my clients all the time, do you feel like you're on a diet, if they ever say yes, I'm like, back up. We got to change something because the answer should always be no. So the carb strategies for fat loss course is really the how to once you get to the point where the self-limiting beliefs aren't holding you back anymore. That was my big rock. That was my issue. I had to address that stuff because that had been taught to me for years, my whole entire life. So there are 100 opportunities to get those courses for 49 bucks, lifetime access to all the course material and to me because I'm in the courses every single day. Use the coupon code 100, 100. It's the number not spelled out. So the first 100 people in each one of those are going to get lifetime access for just 49 bucks. And you can get the links to those courses on the show notes page for this episode over on primalpotential.com. Real quickly, because I know this episode is running long, what I ate yesterday, (laughs) so appropriate. Yesterday, I had my normal two cups of Bulletproof coffee in the morning. Then I ate an entire small can of almonds. (laughs) 
I don't buy nuts for that reason, but I've been doing some traveling and I had like one of the mini cans of almonds. I ate the whole thing. So I counted that as lunch because I didn't need that many almonds. And then dinner was um, a filet of salmon that had been grilled and Brussels sprouts sauteed with one quarter of a sweet potato and bacon. So basically I just cooked the bacon and then I threw in the sweet potato and the Brussels sprouts and cooked them in, sauteed them in the bacon fat. Um, And that was my dinner. So congratulations and thank you for 100 episodes. Congratulations just that it's like still here because of your support and encouragement. And thank you for all of your feedback, your amazing questions, your support and encouragement. I just honestly, I feel like I know you guys. I love you guys. You mean the world to me. This is what I was meant to do with my life and you all just make me feel so good about it every day. So please never, ever, ever, ever hesitate to email me directly if you have questions or suggestions. I hope to see you in those e-courses and the reason I hope to see you there is because I know what a big difference it makes, especially if you're on the fence and you have to pick one or the other, Use the coupon code 100 and get yourself into the emotional eating course, okay? There are guided meditations in there. Uh, I am in there every day. And I really believe that that is the key to lasting fat loss for most people. Yes, fat loss is 90% nutrition, but nutrition is 90% mindset. Why you eat, not what you eat. What has been holding you back. The things that you believe about weight loss being hard or you being a failure. I really hope to see you in there because I know what a positive impact it can make in your life. So the links will be over on the show notes page. But whatever you decide, if you have questions, if you feel stuck, if you are struggling, if you just need to share your story, please email me. You can email me from the VIP list, which is a free list on Primal Potential, or you can just email me directly if you don't want to be on the VIP list. I don't care. I just want to help you. My email is elizabeth at primalpotential.com, and I will respond to you because I want to help. So thank you. I managed to get through this without crying, but now I'm feeling oddly emotional. I love you guys so much, and I'll see you soon with another episode. Thank you again. Bye-bye.